is 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 somebody fighting you on it? No, but there is a general anti ketchup bend out in the world, and I I want to fight back. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Adequately Informed podcast for Monday, January 6th. My name's Evan Kelly. And I'm Joe Hicks. So, Joe, before we get into our normal little bit, you want to explain why this is a Monday instead of a Sunday? Well, it's Monday because, you know, I, I, I have a job and my shift has changed and it's going to make more sense to release on this Monday. I mean, we've also had the holidays and getting all that back. Uh, I know we had a podcast last week, but shh, we recorded that beforehand. So we <laughs> are going to tentatively move to Mondays now. A brand new day, brand new programming. We're going to approach everything totally different, aren't we, Evan? Yep, bad faith, straight from the ivory tower. That's adequately informed now. Actually changing the name of the podcast to inadequately disinformed. So you have that to look forward to. In a, it, that, that seems like one of those double negatives where it come back to meeting the same things. I'm like fine if, with that. Yeah, that, that'll be our uh, spinoff podcast. Yeah, that'll be hosted by like... I don't know, whoever our protégés are. Can it be like uh, the same style of podcast about like the same subjects, but hosted by our siblings who aren't anywhere close to knowing anything about this stuff? Um, I think it would venture out of a news podcast and become an entertainment podcast at that point. But I mean, I mean, that's we, that's we the figure. spinoff. Yeah. You know, the spinoff isn't always the same as the original. Look, I'm still just hoping that our first spinoff is going to be a channel for my spoken word poetry. So, I mean, you do you, man. We'll have uh, Evan's Poetry Corner. I I don't want the corner. I want the whole damn room. Okay, well, we'll put it. We'll get you a side room. Thank you. Okay, so all bits aside, this week we are doing our third week of form mat breaking podcasting we had planned to go in to have a normal episode to start the year off but it turns out the year started off not wanting us to do that because uh what day was that on thursday january 2nd a u.s airstrike bombed Iranian military leader Qasem Soleimani in Iraq, which has prompted a whole lot of hubbub. And we definitely believed that this is something that we needed to devote a whole episode to. I know it feels strange having just gone through the impeachment episode, but It really does feel like these are two of the biggest topics that have broken, probably the two biggest topics that have broken since we've been doing this podcast. And there's going to be a lot of additional news coverage and potential political and military action. So we want to keep you guys adequately informed on a very big happening within our world. Yes, I I, with this big of an event happening, 
it would feel dishonest to our ethos and what we believe our role is if we did not cover this. So with our little flip of the introductions and all that, Evan, do you have a question for me? (laughs) (laughs) Do do we have to keep with that? (laughs) (laughs) All right, Joe, what are you going to talk about? So I am here to start out the first main subject of talking about Iran, which is to catch us up with some history of U.S.-Iranian history together, some background information. Um, just as a general for what's going forward. Then after this, Evan's going to talk about the Iran deal. Then we're going to talk about what actually happened in Iran this these last few days. And then we'll give commentary. So anyway, this story all starts in the 16th century. <laughs> like, in a way it does. Um, so like... Iran is this country that has had a very big role in the Middle East. One one thing that it has going for it is that if you look at it on a map, Iran is very strategically located. It's right on the Persian Gulf, but it also has the Caspian Sea to the north. It kind of connects... Uh, the easternmost of Europe, the westernmost of Asia, with Afghanistan and Pakistan being to its east and Iraq being to its west, and it being along the traditional Silk Road of, you know, of Asia, of trade. And, you know, it also has, it's the cradle of civilization right up there. <laughs> this is one of the oldest areas of the whole world. I mean, oldest continuously inhabited by civilization and that you know has a clear lineage along it and so iran has seen quite a lot going on and one of the first things that has any bearing on modern times is that way back in the 16th century iran was religion uh, designated by the dynasty that was in charge then, designated the Shia version of Islam as the official version of the official religion of Iran, which, you know, there if you've listened to happenings in the Middle East, there's Sunni and Shia Muslims, with Sunni being the major form of the religion that most Muslims follow. And then there's also uh, Shia sect, which, you know, they dispute over some core history of their religion. So Iran is a Shia dominated country with, you know, around 90 percent of the country being practicing Muslims. One thing that was also big that happened in the 16th century was the distinct power given to clergy members in Iran. The, you know, if you ever hear of the Ayatollah, the supreme leader, this is the tradition that that comes from, where there are religious leaders that uh, have a 
huge say. I mean, uh, Iran, you know, even though it has democratic elements, the the true leader of Iran is the Ayatollah, who is the head of the clergy of uh, the Shia uh, Shia Islam, and they have final say over whatever's happening. So let's fast forward a little bit. Where do things get rocky? Where, where does U.S. and Iran start to clash? Well, the big, the, the big first showing, big clash between Iran and the U.S. happened in 1953. So that, during World War II, uh, Iran had been tra- transitioned uh, from being an authoritarian regime under uh, Mohammad Reza Shah to becoming a democracy for a brief period of time in the post-world peri- post-war period, uh, Iran was a democracy. Their leader was Mohammad Mossadegh. And he came in and his big deal was the oil that was in Iran was being taken out by the company that was, would someday become BP and was taking basically all the money proceeds from that and just paid a stipend to the Shah. Now, the people of Iran were upset with that because they were seeing all this wealth that was being created in their from their land. They wanted in on that. So, Mohammad Mosaddegh, he nationalized the oil company. Uh, in Iran so that the oil production belonged to the people. This was not great to Britain and also not great to the United States. And also, other fact, Mohammad Mazadik was also a communist, which, you know, during the 1950s, there was a great Red Scare, uh, the United States fighting, trying to fight communism all over the world. And there was also uh, fears within Iran with the clergy that communism would lead to the ousting of, you know, the clergy and their power. And, you know, that that sometimes happens under communism. So it's kind of disputed that there if there really was a coup or if not, I mean, the United States and Britain definitely tried to stage a coup of Mohammed Mossadegh. Whether that's what got him out or if Mossadegh left because uh, the Shia clergy was trying to push him out, that's, you know, it's a little disputed, but it definitely, you know, I would say it leans 70, you know, at least 80% towards the coup. But anyway, so this, this got a lot of people upset because they, you know, the U.S. came and overthrew their democracy. So what happened was they installed Mohammad Reza Shah, or sometimes referred to as the Shah, like I did earlier. He was reinstated and he was backed by the U.S. and he was an absolute brutalist dictator. He suppressed the people. He did not, uh, you know, he ruled with an iron fist. Um, he was, you know, he was a keen ally of the U.S., which deepened the dislike for the U.S., and he led a campaign of modernization, which, you know, while helped provide better, you know, quality of life for the people of Iran, the people felt like 
they had a way of life that was being imposed on them that was just the United States, and they were wondering if there was room for them to be themselves. So this gets us up to 1979 of the Iranian Revolution. So kind of generally, the demonstrations had started because of general dissatisfaction with uh, living conditions. Um, there was also a protest that, I mean, was, you know, one of the early protests was also because somebody had, uh, an Iranian newspaper had criticized the Ayatollah, uh, which was, you know, the supreme religious leader who was not in the country at the time. He was living in Paris. You know, he was kind of exiled. At, you know, an Iranian paper had criticized him. So this started some protests and we got a round of, uh, you know, the state tried to crack down and then more protests happened because they tried to crack down. And then soon there was the big overthrow of the government, which led to Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini uh, becoming the supreme leader and running Iran, instituting Sharia law. So this is led to the creating of the Islamist state that is Iran. So then after that, we got more bad blood of what of U.S. and Iranian interests. So U.S. had supported the Shah, and the Shah was not very popular in Iran. He got ousted. So after the Shah got ousted, he kind of was in limbo for a little while of where he was going to flid to, and he also had cancer at the time. So he was going around trying to seek treatment and shelter, and begrudgingly, the U.S. under Jimmy Carter accepted the Shah to the United States which uh, to seek treatment, which really angered the revolutionaries in Iran. This then led to Iranian uh, revolutionaries taking hostage of... Uh, 52 hostages at the U.S. Embassy in Tehran for 440 days, which was popularly uh, shown a few years ago. I, what was the movie, Argo? Argo, 2012. Yeah. So that, really, 2012? Yep. Wow. Jeez, I thought it was last time. <laughs> anyway... These revolutionaries took 52 hostages at the U.S. Embassy for 444 days. Um, they originally they ended up getting released on the day Reagan took office, which he got all the credit for that. And then during the hostage crisis started the Iran-Iraq war, which Iraq was looking to capitalize on Iran going through a revolution to try and gain some territory on the Iran and Iraq border. So during this, the U.S. generally supported Iraq, seeing Saddam Hussein as an ally in the region during that time. Haha, -ha, that's irony. <laughs> and then we had the Iran-Contra scandal, where uh, the Reagan administration through Ali North was selling weapons to Iran to a f to prop up revolutionaries in Nicaragua, the Contras, 
So they were selling weapons to Iran. So they were selling weapons to Iraq and they were selling weapons to Iran. And once that all blew up, that also led to a deterioration of the United States and Iran's eyes for their duplicity. They're playing both sides, not really caring who wins or loses. Oh, boy. So then we keep going. Then, towards the end of the Iran-Iraq War in 1988, the U.S. shot down Iranian Air Flight 655, mistakenly uh, classifying it as a fighter jet when it was, in fact, a passenger passenger jet. That killed 290 people. It was shot down over the Persian Gulf. So, after that, you know, things weren't great during the 90s. I mean, they, they weren't great but they weren't terrible uh the iran and i iran just and the u.s just kind of did their thing i guess but then um the iraq war happened that created a uh big power vacuum that iran was trying to do i mean it kind of helped them out because they helped they didn't like saddam hussein and created a way to get influence in iraq but that's that's another story Then we get to about 2005-ish. So President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, maybe a familiar sounding name to some people, maybe I hopefully, maybe somebody out there. He, when he was elected president, he vowed to step up uranium production in their, uh, your, you know, their nuclear power industry which at times had been given to and helped along with by the United States of all people given to them in the fifties, you know, and to help, you know, build nuclear power. But he stepped up uranium production in order to, uh, I was believed in order to build nuclear weapons, which was, you know, in part to stave off attacks from the United States but also because neighbor uh, to the east, Pakistan has nuclear weapons. A little bit further, India has pet nuclear weapons. And while officially they say they don't have them, they do have them. Israel has nuclear weapons, which is a sworn enemy of Iran. So from there, we get to 2006, where George Bush declares Iraq, Iran, and North Korea the axis of evil, that they are bringing all the evil onto the world. And the UN, through that, well, not quite in conjunction with that, but along with that, the UN approves economic sanctions on Iran, which includes a whole host of European nations also cutting off economic relations with Iran. And from there, we get to 2010. The United States sabotaged the Iranian nuclear program by hacking their computers. And then um, in 2013, Hassan Rouhani. Yeah, I think that's it. Hassan Rouhani housed uh, Ahmadinejad as uh, president of Iran, which opened the uh, the ability for a uh, deal to be had with 
Ahmadinejad being a major hardliner in Iran. So that gets us to the Iran deal. Hey, Evan. Hey. You want to talk about the Iran deal, or do you have anything to add to the history of uh, Iran before we go into that deal? I don't have a great deal to add. Maybe I can just get a little transitional segment in here and then smoothly slide on into talking about the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, Sanctions in Iran had been imposed going back as far as the early 1980s in response to the hostage crisis. However, deals were always reached to remove the sanctions after a relatively short amount of time until the 2006 sanctions that Joe mentioned. So what did it do? Those sanctions uh, created an arms embargo in which they no nation who was abiding by the sanctions could sell arms to Iran. It froze Iranian assets within the global finance market. So if Iran had money in a French bank or a Swiss bank or you know a Chinese bank, they they would no longer have access to those funds. The accounts were frozen. And it also, among other things, restricted the oil markets, the international oil markets for Iran to sell their oil. And with fewer markets to sell their oil to, that obviously limits their economic capabilities. All of these together created dire economic conditions in Iran and gave them incentive to come to the negotiating table. So before we get to the actual... Uh, negotiations. I just want to kind of emphasize, you know, do a synthesis of all that I I just blurted out at you guys and what Evan said. So <laughs> going back, the U.S. the U.S. has done a lot to Iran, and Iran has done a lot to the U.S. And there has been a tit to tat nature, and the nature of it is very complex. It's not the last thing that happened. It's the last, you know, it's the last half the century and whatever's going on now. It's It's been a rocky road from the get-go. And there there's reason to be uh, for animosity on both sides, I would say. Uh, you know, one of the main... One of the main criticisms of Iran is that people, you know, in Iran, you know, at least I don't know if it's I mean, I'm going to guess it's probably uh, going again. But people will say like death to America, they'll burn American flags and all that stuff, because, you know, the United States did a whole fucking lot to them. Over yep, we tinkered around and tried to impose a leadership structure on them that they did not organically choose. So I understand and, the resentment. And that and that's also part of a greater policy that world powers have had in the Middle East of trying to keep a destabilized Middle East. And it, it's been a rough go in Iran. <laughs> um, they, they haven't been having a good go of it for a good long time. And... It's not because of some like racist interpretations that they're just a bunch of people wearing towels on their head and they won't modernize that it's complex and 
not to say whatever's happening, whatever the actions that Iran takes are justified, but there is they're they're just not trying to poke the bear. They don't hate us because of our freedom. <laughs> yeah, as John Perkins posits in his famously influential and also controversial memoir, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, Iran was one of the countries where U.S. businesses went in and essentially, essentially lied to leadership about the feasibility and economic benefits of modernization in order to gain lucrative development contracts for U.S. firms. So both in the public and private sector, we have been tinkering with the Iranian social order in a way that really it can only foster resentment if they were on, if they were, if they were taking parallel actions towards the united states of the same caliber we would be a lot more pissed off at them than we are now it would lead like, to open war yeah if we if yeah. they if they were doing to us what we were doing to them we would not stand for it we have gone to war over less like I, I have talked about this with Evan before, and I haven't talked about it on the podcast, but um, the, I have a general belief that, you know, the nations can and their foreign policy can exist on a scale that on the on the left side has malevolent, you know, bad acting and on the right side, benevolent, which is, you know, good and, you know, prosperous and, you know. Uh, altruistic and all that fun stuff and the u.s on that scale is like right dab in the middle just just a hair towards benevolent in what it can do but the what the u.s has engaged in iran really does a good amount of work to pull it to the malevolent side the bad side certainly certainly um, what we could do in a whole lot of the rest of the world is really bad, but we have done a lot of bad stuff in Iran. Yes. So all of this sets the scene for the Obama administration. Iran is struggling under harsh economic sanctions, but at the same time, they are building quite a nuclear stockpile and the international community fears that they are getting close to acquiring nuclear capabilities. In an era of nuclear disarmament, we understand how devastating nuclear war will be, how devastating those types of weapons have been in the past, and there is a high global imperative to go through nuclear disarmament and to de-escalate when countries have nuclear weapons or make moves to acquire nuclear capabilities. So the United States and its allies are motivated to disarm and prevent a nuclear Iran. And Iran is motivated to improve its economic conditions by negotiating for sanction relief. In 2015, an international coalition featuring the United States, as well as the United Kingdom, Germany, China, Russia, and France are able to successfully negotiate an agreement with the Iranian government, which will stop them from stockpiling enough material to easily create a nuclear bomb. 
This plan is known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which can be abbreviated JCPOA. So if you hear that, that means Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. And in the public discourse, this is referred to as the Iran nuclear deal or sometimes even just the Iran deal. All of those are referring to the same negotiations between those countries and Iran. Man, in America, we sure do like our deals. Yeah. The Iran deal, the new deal, the square deal. Like a deal. It's kind of part of, you know, appealing to a a social contract. I feel like that that idea of of a social contract has been very big in American political thought. So it makes sense that that manifests in tabbing things as deals. So anyway... The Iran deal was adopted on October 18th, 2015, and after inspectors determined that Iran was in good faith going through the beginning motions of the deal, it was implemented on January 16th, 2016. And here's what the deal entailed. Iran had to severely curtail nuclear development in exchange for lifting sanctions. This meant that Iran could no longer possess medium-enriched uranium, and it had to reduce by 98% its supply of low-enriched uranium. It had to reduce its number of centrifuges, and centrifuges are essentially machines that have a lot of uses, but this specific type of centrifuge is used to enrich uranium. And they had to reduce those by two-thirds and agree to other caps on future enrichment. Now, some of this gets kind of technical because we talk about the enrichment level of uranium. Basically... Of all the types of uranium, only one isotope is really good for uses in nuclear energy, nuclear warheads, and so the concentration of that isotope is what we talk about when we talk about enrichment percentage, and these come at different levels. In order to get a nuclear warhead, your uranium has to be 90% enriched. That's kind of considered the benchmark for an effective nuclear weapon. Whereas research-grade uranium is only about 20% enriched, and the type of uranium that you use in nuclear power power plants is only 3.6, roughly, percent enriched. And so it's relatively easy to determine whether uranium has potential to be used in a nuclear warhead or not. The only problem is that... Go ahead. Sometimes referred to as yellow cake. There you go. I think I think that's I'm well now you go on I'm going to look it up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um essentially though the the only catch is that you can still enrich the low grade uranium into higher grade uranium which is why the centrifuge pact was such an important part of these discussions. Okay, so the yellow, idea is that yeah. Yellow cake is like mid-tier enriched uranium it's like on its way so if you ever hear about like yellow cake in talks about nuclear energy that's what that is yep yellow cake i guess can be fed into the centrifuge and that's what becomes the weapons grade uranium the rationale behind all of these deliberations was to say okay if all of the sudden Iran decides we don't want to do the deal anymore and we're going to start working on a nuclear warhead tomorrow, that the restrictions placed by the 
JCPOA would at least make it so that their nuclear capabilities would be delayed one year from their start date, which would give us time to defend against that either diplomatically or otherwise. Of course, the hope is that Iran never gets that far, but that's sort of the failsafe is that one year time frame from their reduced capacity is negotiated in the deal and a full nuclear warhead. Yeah. So like, even if they, the day after the deal, after they surrendered, you know, most of their uranium stockpiles, they went right back to trying to create a nuclear warhead there. It would still have bought the world a whole lot of time to put a stop to that. Yes. Another part of the deal that was really important was oversight. And Iran agreed to have the International Atomic Energy Agency, which we will also refer to as the IAEA, conduct inspections more or less at any part of the country's nuclear facilities at any time. And it's important for Iran to maintain the low enriched uranium so that they can work on nuclear power as an energy source and also for research purposes. But again, we need that oversight, that UN agency, the IAEA, to make sure that they're not enriching the uranium past the agreed upon limit. Under the, under the new agreement, there's no reason why Iran would ever legitimately have uranium enriched beyond that 3.6% needed for energy capabilities. Mm-hmm. The, the stipulation about the oversight has been received in a very mixed capacity. Some commentators believe that it's sort of unprecedented, the level of access that the IAEA has to these Iranian facilities. But at the same time, there is a clause which says that the Iranians can object to an inspection and have as much as 24 days to wait before actually submitting to an inspection, which some pundits believe gives them too much time between the investigation request and the actual investigation to hide any evidence of wrongdoing and violations. Yeah, so like, yeah, some people believed that this was like unprecedented level of giving, you know, allowing oversight. And then there were a bunch of hardliners in the U.S. who were saying this is nowhere near enough uh, freedom for oversight. So, yes, yeah, and we will get into that. the criti- well, there will be yeah. plenty of time where I will more fully discuss the criticism, but that's that's one of the big problems that some people see within the Iran deal. But it was agreed to and the sanctions were lifted. And so what happened was that Iran no longer had these harsh economic conditions imposed upon them. They had more access to the global markets. They could sell their oil in a a wider scale. They had their assets unfrozen in foreign banks so they could participate in global finance and gain access to that revenue stream. And for the most part, actually, by all anyone can tell entirely, they complied with the terms of the Iran deal. They submitted to inspections. The IAEA reported no lack of compliance and everything seemed to be working well. So why then does Donald Trump call this 
the worst deal in history. There was ample criticism for this Iran nuclear deal. The most the, the, the most important or at least the most prevalent complaint had to do with the deal's sunset clauses. Essentially, most of the restrictions placed on Iran would expire, some in 2025 and some in 2030. So at the time, that was only about a 20 to 25 year window after which Iran would be able to legally begin enriching uranium again. But the using that as a rationale to back out of the deal is pretty counterintuitive. If we're afraid that by 2025 or 2030, Iran will be able to begin developing nuclear arms again, why would we pull out and move that clock up to immediately? Yeah. <laughs> if we're worried about Iran being able to develop nuclear weapons too soon, all that pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal does is make them able to develop nuclear weapons sooner. It's it's really counterintuitive. Even if you didn't like the agreement as put in place, backing out doesn't make a whole lot of sense, at least on that first charge. Mm-hmm. Another problem was that the deal was believed to be too lenient on Iran. The idea was that even though we've limited their nuclear capabilities, we didn't put restrictions on other types of Iranian aggression. For example, we did not bar them from developing and using intercontinental ballistic missiles, which even without a nuclear warhead can be extremely damaging. Or if they decide later to develop a warhead, if they already have the missile technology, that makes their warheads that much more of a global threat. Another complaint was that by allowing Iran to have access to its frozen foreign assets, that would give them more money to fund terrorist organizations, and general destabilization within the Middle East. Both Israel, again, as Joe mentioned, who are big-time enemies of Iran, and Saudi Arabia opposed the Iran nuclear deal as written and were highly critical of the negotiators. Even so, even with the structural issues, it seemed like a win-win. Iran was abiding, we pushed their nuclear clock back, and their economy was growing again. But nonetheless, on May 8th, 2018, Donald Trump withdrew from the Iran nuclear deal. One of the provisions of the deal was that it had to be reauthorized every 90 days, and Trump eventually decided to stop doing that. So all of the other countries who negotiated the pact are still technically in it, But the United States has withdrawn their support and reimposed sanctions on Iran. And the impact of this has been, well, it's been disappointing. As recently as 2018, the IAEA reported that Iran was in compliance with the nuclear deal. However, in 2019, remember after the sanctions have been reimposed, Iran has openly announced that it is going to increase its stockpile beyond the prescribed levels in the Iran nuclear deal, and it is also going to begin development on a greater number of centrifuges, which can then enrich uranium more quickly the more centrifuges they have. So they are now openly violating the terms because the conditions of their compliance were not being met. The United States 
reimposed economic sanctions. And so they lost the incentive to comply with the nuclear regulators. Yeah, some 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 commentators in the U.S. have very dishonestly used that as justification for tearing up the iran deal it's like look they're using they're they're enriching uranium and it's like well they did that after we pulled out of our side what are you talking about we're the ones who violated the agreement what if if our word is no good why would we expect them to honor an agreement that we already walked away from it's it's absolutely ridiculous huh they wanted to enrich uranium the whole time Yes, that's why there's a deal in place to stop them from doing so. Yeah. Yeah. So Donald Trump has promised to negotiate a better deal, but Iran is playing hardball and refusing to even have negotiations with the United States until the terms of the JCPOA are reinstated, namely that those economic sanctions are re-lifted from Iran. So Donald Trump said, it's a bad deal. I can do better, but it's been almost two years now and negotiations have not even begun. Tensions are at an all time high. It's entirely plausible that Trump could have negotiated a better deal while still remaining in the original deal. But instead he took, excuse my turn of phrase, but the nuclear option and blew up the talks and withdrew from the deal, causing extreme friction between the United States and Iran, continuing this decades-long hostility, and it leads us to where we are today. So before we get to where we are today, I have a few points to make on some of the criticisms of the Iran deal. I am I was very favorable of the Iran deal and I was very impressed by it. If you look at the kind of how it was crafted, the tit for tat, the logic behind it. But so there was criticism on the inspections. Um so it was the IAEA, you know, the the UN body that oversees nuclear activity in the world was doing the inspections hardliners in the United States, Iran Hawks, as they were some kind sometimes called, uh, believe that United States inspectors should be able to go there and it shouldn't just be, uh, no nuclear facilities that they should have free reign to go to any fucking facility in Iran at any time, which is kind of patently ridiculous. (laughs) <laughs> we we they a country isn't just going to grant full carte blanche of every facility ever in their whole country um and the IAEA is an independent body of the world stage so it was fine for them to come in but they wouldn't just let you know like US military personnel come in because you know that would probably be seen as scoping out the damn place um and there was also the criticism on the provision of Iran being able to delay an inspection by 24 days, 23, 24 days, something like that. 24 is what I had read. Yep. Okay. And that may sound like that is, you know, they would be able to just be able to hide whatever they were doing in that amount of days. But 
it's kind of twofold to one if the united states is or if they're wanting to inspect that surveillance capabilities would be able to i mean i would guess would be able to see if they're moving a whole bunch of shit and two uranium like you enriched uranium when you take it away from somewhere the the uh nuclear footprint that it leaves doesn't just leave with it so if they are enriching uranium that's anywhere close to what would be needed to create a nuclear warhead they it would leave a distinct trail of radiation where it had been like if you show up to an area that was making uh enriching uranium and they packed up and they've been gone for 24 days there is still going to be a distinct uh, radiation signal that shows that there was uranium being enriched at that facility. Which yep, there's would an be- apparatus called a Geiger counter, very simple to use, that can detect radioactive material. And that's the thing about radioactive material is that it's unstable, so particles fly off. And as Joe said, don't leave with the bulk of the material even if it's taken away yeah so the well kind of on a surface level it may seem like that the criticism that you know they can pack up and move things in 24 days seems valid it when it you know comes up to scrutiny with what we're dealing with it does not uh hold up 100 percent um one criticism of the deal, you know, you'll hear Trump say it, you'll hear Republicans say it, is that, oh, we just gave however many billions of dollars to Iran in this deal. And that is not true. We did not give them money in this deal. We let them have access to their own money uh, that was in banks. Uh, you know, like Evan said, if it was in a French bank, now they have access to it. If they had China and in a Chinese bank, they had access to it. In an American bank, they have access to it now. Um, so there was not an exchange of uh, money for this uh, instance. And then there was also a, a similar criticism that at the time Iran had had four American hostages um that uh they were keeping and there was criticism that that was not part of the iran nuclear deal or iran yeah iran nuclear deal and the rationale i mean give this take it or leave it if you want but the at least the rationale was they didn't want a full in you know a, a, a deal international deal as an important on this they didn't want it to be contingent on the release on of for hostages they wanted it to stand on its own for its own deal so quietly after the not long after the iran deal there seems to be exchange of money of something but the hostages ended up getting released just a little bit later evan also had mentioned that they were still able to test icbms um so in the you know once the deal started there were people who would say that iran was not following the deal 
and they were never able to produce solid evidence that they weren't abiding by the deal. Uh, they, you know, it wasn't like any sort of nuclear report, anything like that. There was, it was just one suspicion of that. No, Iran has to be working on something far away from us where they can't, we can't see it. It's they're deceiving us. And B, there was, if you, uh, and B, sometimes people would say Iran is violating the spirit of the deal when they tested ICBMs, which, you know, however much weight you want to give that, that the testing of ICBMs was a deliberate negotiation and it, it wasn't like left off the table, but implied, oh, you know, don't do this. It was deliberately negotiated that they would still be able to do that. Now, is that great for the world? No. Is any arms testing good for the world? No. But it was not in the Iran deal that Iran would give up the testing of its ICBMs. Exactly. If they wanted to adhere to some spirit of the deal, they could have codified it and they chose not to. Yeah. So... Um, do you have anything, any other points on the Iran deal? Yeah, just to assert that the the two biggest popular ways to cry wolf that I recall were the the argument about violating the spirit of the agreement, which I don't buy into, and then the idea that at least this this took more popularity once Trump took office, but the idea that even if Iran was following the letter of the law in terms of that agreement, it still wasn't enough. And we still gave up too great of concessions. And it was such a bad deal that we just had to hit the reset button. So before we move into the main subject, there's one last little thing that I want to express about how things work with Iran. So um, there was a fear that Evan mentioned earlier that there was a fear that Iran would take the money that it got back from sanctions being lifted to fund terrorism. Now, there is some validity to that, and that kind of helps lead into uh, what has happened just recently. But so Iran is kind of a poor country. It doesn't have a whole lot going on. It has oil, but um, it has very deep inequality with, you know, I mean, kind of like how we talk in the US, the the people at the top reaping the benefits, the ruling class are reaping the benefits of the oil, and the rest of the country has been hit hard with, uh, hit hard with, you know, bad economics and, you know, poverty and all that fun stuff. So because of that, they aren't quite able to keep a formal military kind of like how the United States was, does. There is the Iran Revolutionary Guard, which is the formal military of Iran. But there, there's another way that Iran... Uh, fulfills its uh, military objectives, which is by uh, roping in mostly Shia militias who 
will do their bidding in different states. Um, and that's that's where they get the charge that they are supporters of terrorism, which is true. Um, Hezbollah, which is one of the main uh, Shia militias that Iran supports, is a terrorist organization. And they f- fight in Iraq um, and they're in throughout the Middle East, they support, revolutionaries in Yemen to overthrow the government there. They they support Shia militias throughout the Middle East to accomplish several different causes. Like in Syria, Iran helped a lot to fight ISIS, but they were also fighting ISIS in order to help prop up Bashir al-Assad, the brutalist dictator of Syria. Whereas the United States was fighting ISIS, but mostly f- supporting people, more people more like the Kurds who are fighting to overthrow Bashir al-Assad as well. So the Iran influence, you know, exerts influence in military matters by uh, working with, supporting, propping up uh, militias throughout the Middle East that also commit terrorist acts. So that's that that's kind of uh, that that's a bit of a lead in to the main topic. All right, so with all we talked about, all the issues between Iran and the U.S. and the deals that have been made and not upheld, we that brings us to um, that brings us to a couple weeks ago, or really a week ago. So. Since the since the end formal end of the U.S. participation in the Iran deal, there have been escalating tensions between the two countries. Understandably, because <laughs> um, one feature that has been core to Iran-U.S. politics since the beginning is that both sides, both countries, both nations have a very distinct set of hardliners in their politics about the other country. In the United States, this takes the form of, you know, more hawkish uh, people on foreign policy. Republicans like Lindsey Graham, Tom Cotton have been very, uh, you know, Ted Cruz have been very vocal in their opposition to Iran falling short of just asking for an all out war with Iran. And then there are similar factions within Iran, mostly within the clergy that kind of make it harder to have a peaceful existence. Uh, You know, if you, if anybody remembers back to when the Iran deal was being signed and ratified and, you know, the, you know, right before that happened, congressional Republicans actually sent a letter to Iran 
saying basically saying they shouldn't make this deal because they're not going to sign it, which still to this day is unprecedented and just really weird. And there are similar folk in Iran who very much did not want the deal either because of their their reciprocal animus towards the United States. So in this kind of free fall without the Iran deal, this has allowed hardliners to get a, a little bit more uh, clout, a little bit more ability to express their views on the other. And there has, because of the end of the deal, there has also been kind of an end to needing niceties towards each other. So in the last few months, there have been kind of back and forths, um, like, you know, Iran will, you know, Irani sponsored militias will attack an oil tanker and the U S will retaliate and, you know, little squabbles back and forth. But what, the the line of events that has directly led to the assassination of Major General Qasem Salemni uh, was a few days, uh, about a week ago, from whenever this air when this airs, um, an American contractor in Iraq, not even an American soldier. I mean, not to downplay their life, but. An American contractor in Iraq near an I, uh, and an American base in northern Iraq was killed, and in that same week, four mil or uh, yeah, four uh, American military men were injured by Hezbollah. That led to the United States taking a retaliatory strike against Hezbollah which killed 25 and injured uh, upwards of 50 members of Hezbollah. From there, uh, members of the Hezbollah militia staged a protest and stormed the U.S. embassy in Baghdad on New Year's Eve uh, barging into the embassy, causing a ruckus. Nobody died, but they sure did create quite a scuffle. There was violence involved, and it took uh, military to disperse the, the crowd, which there was a real fear that it was going to turn into a much more gruesome scene. And this all leads to January 2nd, 2020, when uh, Donald Trump ordered an airstrike on Major General Qasem Slamini, who was at the time in a convoy at the Baghdad airport in Iraq, which killed him a... I believe it was uh, either an Iraqi or Hezbollah leader and a few members of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. You got anything to say? Um, In terms of the 
the timeline. That's that's what I'm aware of. So yeah. So that is what happened, and this all got released to the world pretty haphazardly, and it has caused quite a stir, hasn't it? I mean, hell, we're we're doing a whole podcast on it. We're here. <laughs> we devoted a whole podcast to get to this point. So, Hossam Salemini was the major general, a uh, very an extremely high up military figure in Iran. He oversaw the Iran Revolutionary Guard, but then he also oversaw the military operations that happened in the militias throughout the Middle East, like we mentioned earlier, you know, militias in Syria, you know, Hezbollah and Iraq, uh, uh, all of those organizations and very key to Iranian, uh, Iranian military apparatus. And he was a big target. He has been, uh, on the United States, I mean, he's took up his role in 1998, and ever since the United States has been war in the Middle East, especially in the Iraq area since about, you know, what was it, 2003, 2004, he has been a top target, but has been both from, uh, Foreign affairs, uh, people that I have listened to and who have been, you know, in the know, apparently, uh, you know, assassinating Solemni has been on the table for both Bush and Obama, and they both decided against it to because of the potential chaos that would come after his killing. Yeah, what you have here is the United States deciding to, through the use of a drone strike, assassinate a major foreign military leader, and it was done unilaterally in a nation that we're not in an open hostile conflict with, and it... I guess I'll I'll be the first to offer my up or down vote on it. Seems seems like a very bad move. Yes. So this the uh, the claim the administration is making that they had the authority to do this was under the 2003 authorization of military force in Iraq, which was used for the Iraq War, and. Which really makes you think we, you know, we need to rein in some of the powers the president has mm-hmm. uh, for military. I mean, we get into, I mean, this has always been kind of a constitutional gray area where, you know, the Constitution says that the president has or the Congress has the sole ability to declare war, but the president is the commander in chief. So there's always this kind of conflict where the president can command what he wants, but he has to kind of be subservient to Congress. But historically, Congress has, I mean, at least in the last 20 years, has been very favorable in giving congressional approval, you know, not not even in specific instances, but giving the president ability to wield the military however they want for the most part. Mm -hmm. 
And this is where we come to it. So there is no beef about it that Slemony was, or Slemony, it's, I'm going to be pissed off at how I pronounce this the whole time, but Slemony was a bad guy. He, his active role was promoting terrorist acts and creating greater destability in the Middle East in order to further Iranian influence in the area. Caused a lot of death, caused a lot of destruction. I mean, it's not a great guy. But, 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 this is an act that's tantamount to war. Like, under any other normal circumstances, and I mean, we, we still have time to see that, you know, maybe this is normal circumstances, that killing a general, not even just a general, a top general in a nation's military is an act of war. Yes, certainly if Iran wanted to, they could interpret this as the opening salvo in a war. That would be a logical conclusion for them to make. Yeah. And it's so there was no congressional approval. I mean, that's, you know, that's a common take, but I, I feel like we're several steps removed from that at this point. The Trump administration did not notify congressional leaders, did not notify our allies, did not notify Iraq, who, where the attack was taking place, mm-hmm. um, did not notify anybody. He just made the order and it was carried out. He seemed to tell Eric Trump about it um, because before it was released, Eric Trump uh tweeted something about, oh, America's about to leash uh, some whoop-ass or some shit like that. So we are at a place where, yes, we killed Celebrity, and he was a bad guy, but this also leads the door to Iran, Iran retaliating. Like... <laughs> It would almost be ludicrous to think they wouldn't retaliate. And the thing is, is that they could retaliate in almost any way. This is They're where not- the public rediscussion of World War Three has come back up because this act is so grave that if not World War Three, it does seem possible that illegitimate global conflict will arise from this action. Right. The the endless wars, the we've always been at war with East Asia. Um but what I mean, I I'm skeptical of World War Three. There isn't gonna be a draft, at least I'm pretty sure, unless things take a pretty dramatic change of course. Iran doesn't want a war. That like if they they know they could not win a war with the United States and the United States is wary I mean at least I would like to think is wary to go to war again 
with the lessons we learned from the Iraq war. I would hope we would take those lessons. But I think you might be having a little bit too much faith in the the people pulling the strings to have Well, that's the thing is that or it, even it, interpreted it, those lessons as the same lessons that maybe the general public has. Yeah. I mean, that that's what it comes down to is that we have a president who just likes to do things <laughs> like it reminds me there's a uh, episode of the West Wing very uh, I think it's in the first season where a, a helicopter an American helicopter gets shut down and President Jed Bartlett has to decide what kind of response to have to that and there are some, you know, responses taking out like a satellite or, you know, an airfield or an ammo dump or stuff like that. And he just feels like it's, you know, what's the point? We need to show them that, you know, we're the top dog not to mess with us anymore. But then also, if you go out and have a maximalist approach, then you just end up spurring additional conflict down the road like uh there there were i airstrikes that happened under the clinton administration in iraq uh towards the end of his presidency it was around the end time of his impeachment and those are seen as the genesis for what inspired 9-11 to happen People angry that the United States just came and bombed their country, despite, you know, regardless of whatever threat those people would have had or could have done or whatever, inspires people to great take even greater action than what was initially being deterred. And I am fearful that another event of the caliber of 9-11 or similar to it could happen because of our assassinating of Slemony. It it doesn't it may not be this year. It may not be the next year. Maybe not even the next five years. But it it could still happen because just point blank doing a drone strike on someone, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, hell, even the escalation before the killing of Slemny was pretty... I mean, once I learned the numbers, it seemed unreal to me. One American dead and four injured, and we killed 25 and injured more than 50. Mm Mm-hmm. How's that for your proportionate response? Yeah, and then there are protests at the Baghdad embassy. And then we kill an Iranian, the the you know the top, Their top Iranian general. general. Yeah, that it just seems wild, disproportionate. It does nothing to help the United States cause in that region, and it really destab it. It hurts um, our national security because this is directly that this is giving you know, somewhat legitimate grounds for people to want to rise up and commit terrorist acts like this. I mean, not 
justified but understandable like if a foreign government just comes in and just kills top members of your you know of your nation then what do you feel like you can do you can't go to full-out war with the united states that won't work what do you do how do you retaliate it's i don't want to be seem like i'm sympathizing with terrorists but this is the line of thinking you have to take with these things like now the the trump administration who are liars they are liars through and through they are saying that they killed him because Solemni was present, you know, was working on a grand attack of the United States, which the uh, the best they're able to do is that Solemni had asked or had presented a grand or some sort of or sought out the uh, a meeting with the Ayatollah of Iran for a special military operation. And he was going out and meeting with militias. And that was about it. The justification that he had some grand plan cooking up. Now, no specifics, no greater justification, just some, I mean, if it, <laughs> If they were able to come out and full sail, give full explanation of the activities that Salemini was going to carry out if he remained alive and they were going to lead to the deaths of many Amer or, you know, hell, many people anywhere, then I could be for it. But right now, the justification is slim from people. I do not trust. One of my favorite pieces that I've read in this aftermath, and from the sounds of it, you probably read it too, was the yep. Matthew Iglesias piece about how just because it's a matter of national security doesn't mean you start trusting a liar. Um, I think at this point, kind of, you believe that Trump is honest or you don't. I think that there is an overwhelming preponderance of the evidence to suggest that lies are a part of his active strategy of obfuscation. He appears to have no interest in the truth. And when something related to national security happens, it becomes so easy to respond in fear because it's scary. You don't want someone to enact violence against your fellow countrymen. You don't want more people to be torn apart. And if someone tells you we stopped that, that's obviously a very difficult to overcome emotional appeal. But what Matthew Iglesias argues is that you still have to remember that Trump is who he is. And what he is and who he is is not trustworthy we cannot take him at face value when he says that there was a plot in the works to attack Americans. There's no, there's nothing that he has ever done to earn our trust when he says something that grand and uses it as a justification for something so incendiary. I, I mean, think his, 
go ahead. His, his, his last public discourse that he waged was on his cameo in Home Alone 2 that was run in Canada. Yes, and he, he just lied Trudeau about that. Editing it. And that was the last battle he chose to pick. Like, oh, I'm going to start slamming Canada because they showed a TV uh, edited for TV version of the movie that cut my cameo in it. Ooh, man, that's the commander in chief of the most powerful country of the fucking world right there. I think the timing of it is really worrying because it definitely feels like Trump is trying to attract some sort of rally around the flag effect or in other way distract from impeachment proceedings. It's kind of the same thing that we talked about with his convenient timing on when to investigate Joe Biden. This guy, Soleimani, has been around for more than a decade, the entire Trump presidency. Why now? Why is now the time to do something about him when your impeachment is still pending in Congress? That right. seems suspect to me. And and he had a tweet in 2012 where he suspected Obama was going to start a war with Iran to get reelected. Yes. Which totally seems like how Trump would think about things and that so he would clearly, try to use that playbook. Yeah, we clearly know that he understands that line of reasoning and buys into it that a political leader would use a military diversion to curry electoral favor. So does he just expect us to forget that he has gone on record as, as acknowledging that as a strategy or or what? It just it um it's all very concerning. They're you know again, you know, it's probably tough to make an unbiased judgment at this point because the nature of Trump is that you will defend him maybe to the death or you can't stand him, but I just really don't see a silver lining here and we've been conditioned to treat it all with such skepticism that everything about this feels wrong and it could have a huge impact on global events and that's scary. I mean, this feels like uh, when Saddam Hussein was toppled in Iraq, like Saddam Hussein was a brutalist dictator and was horrible for the people, horrible for human rights and spawn, you know, had waged several just offensive wars. I mean, there was the Iraq Iran war where he just full scale invaded Iran. There was the first Gulf war where he just full sail invaded Kuwait, Kuwait yeah. because he wanted to. Um, and in the Iraq-Iran war, he used chemical weapons, which is against the Geneva Convention. So he was a very bad guy. And he should have been ousted from, you know, being, uh, you know, the dictator of Iraq. But we did it in such a way that left such a power vacuum that there were, you know, the Sunnis and the Shias and everybody was trying to grab power in Iraq that there was, you know, there was 
I mean, we all we had was the plan to kill or to oust Saddam Hussein. We didn't have the next step of what to do with that, with the chaos in that, a plan of how to create a stable Iraq. And it seems like now we have, you know, it, it seems pretty clear cut. Killing Salemini was a, you know, on, you know, if you take that act in isolation, then yes, this is a good thing. A, he is a man who is a military leader who has led to so much death and destruction, deaths of American lives, but many other lives that he should, you know, you know, I, I take a pretty radical stance on, you know, uh, the, the sanctity of life, but, um, you know, it's good. It's better that he's not around, but there is, you know, it's, it's like, there's no thought to the aftermath of this. How Iran is going to react, who it's going to inspire. You know, one analysis that I read of this is that so in the past few years, because of sanctions and the growing, you know, economic despair of the majority of the people caused by inequality, there have been protests going on, like mass demonstrations in Iran for a little while now. And what this has the potential to do is. Well, Trump may have wanted a rally around the flag effect in the United States, which if anybody doesn't know, which is taking a issue where America or the country is being attacked and use that as a way to bolster support for the current political regime in charge. So, but it seems like this could have the effect of engaging that fact in Iran, not and not here. So they could solidify support for the regime in Iran, and then they will be able to, you know, muster the greater political will to enact changes that can affect, you know, can have a worse attack on the United States because of it, or, you know, United States companies or, you know, military bases abroad or allies of the United States. And it just feels like we, we do time and time again where a singular first act may be moral and justified, but it's, you know, it goes down the road. And once you go past the first part, then it just creates more destruction in its path. It's like Rick and Morty. When Morty wants to do one little good thing, like save a fart cloud from being assassinated, then all of a sudden it's it's well on its way to destroying this, you know, the galaxy <laughs> or whatever it was like you can have one small instance where something is good. But on the world stage, you got to be aware of what that once, you know, you know, relatively small act will affect the bigger picture. And it just feels like nobody who's in charge of the United States is considering that. It just seems to be filled with Donald Trump, who just wants to appear strong and surrounded by hardliners who want to topple the, you know, the, the order in Iran. It's just, 
it's pretty hard. I really struggle with the idea of going back to what you said of not having a plan for how to follow up after we make a big change because it's a fair question why the United States is involved in this type of nation building at all. And I understand that we don't necessarily want to take a blanket with no exceptions, non-interventionist policy because there are certain actions like genocide and gross human rights violations that probably do need outside actors to step in and defend groups that can't defend themselves. But with so many of this, these cases in the Middle East, it feels like it boils down to a case where the you know the the country the locals elected someone who didn't align with u.s interests so we assassinated them and created a huge quagmire and i don't know how we get out of that now you create a quagmire which creates a power vacuum which allows a fair amount of times the most extreme voices to gain power and then that creates another situation where they need to be dealt with. It's just, it always seems like it's on a downward spiral. And one like, that we can't get out of. Like, we already pushed this into motion, and it's it's our responsibility to fix it, but also trying to fix it is how we keep fucking up. So I don't... I don't know. I mean, this, this this is a dichotomy that people who are in the national security apparatus take seriously, like not the the administration currently, but people who have been career, uh, you know, either diplomats or, you know, uh, bureaucrats or workers within the national security and foreign affairs aspects of the United States. It, it's something they take seriously where it's. Okay, so we have to respond to what happens today. But then we also have to make sure that how we respond today isn't causing trouble for us 10 years down the road. And sometimes it's a tough balance to strike. But it sometimes I wonder if we just need to let... I mean... You know, there's one there is the kind of purest idea that we could just leave the Middle East and let it all just be good and hunky dory or it'll just work itself out. But currently, the United States has either propped up or is the main supporting um, military or force that keeps, you know, uh, military, you know, the United States military is in part helping keeping the Iraq, uh, you know, government going. The the nation of Iraq um, helps support the Israel, you know, the Israel. Um, it's just, it's it's all complicated. Every interaction in the Middle East is complicated because there are so many parties and. All these nations, all these people who live there seem to have gotten fucked over so many ways for so many years. Like, just wholesale. There has been so much death and destruction on the regular in the Middle East. 
because a few big players on the outside and a few players on the inside want to play around. Like, you know, Saudi Arabia also has a big part in creating, uh, creating, you know, destabilizing countries in the Middle East. It just happens that they're, you know, the militias that they support don't end up hurting U.S. interests. So we don't, you know, we don't do a big beef with Saudi Arabia. I mean, even though sometimes the people they do sponsor end up uh, hurting the United States, we haven't decided to turn our backs on Saudi Arabia. Um, it's 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 just a lot going on and it's complex and anyone who believes that they have a simple solution is just straight up lying to you. I do, however, want to focus on some tangible action that is being taken in the wake of the killing of Soleimani. Bernie Sanders and Ro Khanna have proposed a bill which would block any funding from being directed towards efforts in a war with Iran that would essentially take away the funding and the juice from any additional incursions that may be the fancy of the Trump administration or his generals. And it, you know, to me, it seems kind of like a long shot that this will actually become the law of the land. I think that the the executive branch will still be able to do what it wants, but I appreciate that there has been a swift opposition within the Congress. Yeah, there. Uh, I mean, in our polarized times, it definitely seems like it's drawn upon across party lines. Um, you know, support or disapproval of what's happening. Um, I, I, I am pretty certain that there isn't going to be full out war with Iran. I mean, I'll gladly eat my hat if that ends up happening because, you know, I'm still pretty much an amateur commentator at this point, And I did the bulk of my learning about, I, you know, Iran in the last, I don't know, a couple days, but <laughs> I, I, I knew a bit, but it's it, it's scary times to be in. It's been scary times to be in. Like everything just feels like it it's turning up. Everything, you know, the pressure on everything has been turning up and we've been had the stereo at 11 for like the last five years. So, I mean, I, you know, I wonder if this will just blow over. Like, at least in the United States, just in a couple days from now, we'll be like, oh, yeah, remember we assassinated that guy? It's crazy. We're talking about The Apprentice now. <laughs> you know, I just I hesitate to even make a prediction because I wouldn't have thought that after our impeachment special that within just a few weeks we would have another event that warranted an entire podcast topic. But 
by next week, who knows? Maybe we'll have an active war. Maybe, you know, a response will have occurred. There's just there doesn't seem to be a way to predict how and when things of magnitude will pop up anymore. And I guess there never has been, but the frequency has definitely been accelerated in the last four years. You know, this, uh, this administration has kind of shown something that, uh, you know, you, Uh, People have talked to people who live through kind of uh, brutalist dictatorships where things are very bad and like, how did you live with it? How did you how did it how did it get to that point and how did you live with it? And then the people are just like, you just did. You just slog on through. That's that seems to be humans innate quality of just slogging through things. And it's just, it just, that's what it feels like at this point. Just we're slogging through things. We're, we're just doing what the day to day. Oh yeah. It's a lot and it's noteworthy, but, uh, seems like everything's a lot of noteworthy these days. So we'll get right back to you on that. I don't know. It's, uh, you know, remember in the nineties, I mean, we, I mean, we, we now know about this because of, you know, learning about it, but you know, how they talked about the end of history and that kind of idea. And now we're back to doing, you know, random wars in the Middle East again, forever, kind of over oil. That's one thing Donald Trump is also very firmly a believer in is that if you go to these countries that have oil, you go suck up all the oil and then leave, which is also against the Geneva Convention. (laughs) Uh, That's my commentary. He posted that uh, that JPEG of the American flag. Low res. And also went on Twitter to seem to advocate for war crimes against Iran. Yeah, so. I mean, it's not a good look, but I think that the response to it has, has treated it with a level of thought that probably was not put into the composition of the tweet. Like, I'm not here to defend it, but it, it definitely, I, I think people well, that's are the, responding the, as if he, he named a list of civilians that he was going to go personally shoot in the face or something. Yeah. It's just like, that's everything with Trump is that he says some, a bunch of crazy shit that since he's the president, you in a way have to like treat it seriously, but he doesn't treat it seriously. So then we just end up talking about it. He's the troll in the oval office. And I guess maybe we should understand that if he's actually going to make a move, he's going to not say anything about it, as is the case with the assassination of Soleimani. But then, you know, we'll say that and then he will say something that we should take seriously and we don't. And then we're in an even bigger puddle. So, I mean, that's also a very Trump deeply held belief is that to for kind of military uh, exercises like this to just just do it um 
And whether that has validity or not, I, I, I don't know, but it's just... Well, it puts a lot of faith in the judgment of, of his judgment. that executive branch. Yeah, and that's not something that I have faith in, so... Yeah. I mean, geez, whenever Obama did a strike, you know, that I mean, criticize him what you want. I mean, for how he handled... You know, killing people in the Middle East, using drone strikes and all that stuff. But it's like and he deserves criticism. I, I want to yeah, be clear about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, we should. Yeah, deserves criticism. But every attack, it was, you know, the generals would propose it. Then Obama would either approve or deny it. Then it would go in motion. And then he would give the final say with Trump. He just lets the generals pick it, just puts it on autopilot. And from what my understanding is, is that the way this happened was they, uh, after the American contractor got killed um, and the four American soldiers got killed or wounded, not even killed, wounded, um, he was given a slate of options with killing Slemny, the most extreme option. Just kind of the kind of, hey, this is kind of on the table, but not really. And then they had executed the strider on Hezbollah, which killed a whole lot of people. And then after the protests in Baghdad, decided, hey, let's go kill that guy. And again, it just feel I just like you were saying, I have no faith in this administration to effectively or safely take us through this this instance like he barely thought about the operation at hand he's just kill kill this guy you know kill a, did a drone strike at the Baghdad airport like what if any other country killed any American by doing a drone strike at any international airport in the United States yeah or that would be fucking country, nuts. Yeah. That would be ridiculous. It would be uns, you know, and, and what I, I have written in my notes is that this to me and I'm sure to many people around the country or around the world truly questions the validity of what the United States says its intentions and beliefs are in its foreign policy and how it acts in the world. And it makes me question, what are we doing? Are we the good guys like we like to think we are? Or are we also just some country that depending on who's in office can either be good or bad. And that's not even necessarily coded as Republican or Democrat. Like just, are we going to, you know, use our political might, you know, not our political might, our military might that we far outpace everybody else in, in a way that is, you know, conducive to, a you know, a worldwide society, or are we just going to take out bad people extra judicially with, with, you know, with technology that makes us unscathed and no other power is going to take us to task because they can't. 
it's another thing that I wrestle with. And it's why I honestly prefer talking about domestic policy because I feel like American politics and policy can really improve people's lives on the domestic level. But when we broaden the scope to the international level, I can't tell you a president who I think has done more good than harm in the world, certainly in my lifetime and really dating back post-war. I mean, it's, it is tough to grapple with on an emotional level, and I don't like thinking about it. And I, I hope this has been informative and it's definitely important to talk about, but it has not been super fun for me <laughs> to try yeah. to process all of this. Yeah. Foreign, especially American foreign policy, you really have, you know, there are a bunch of people who get into it and one frame of reference that they use that helps them, you know, just kind of interface with it at a better way is just whatever's in the United States interest. And that's not the way Evan and I like to look at things like, yeah, sure. We're from the United States. We like to think of the safety of our people and, um, you know, a, a better, safer world, but we don't just look at it, want to look through things as a straight binary good for the U S or not on a moment to moment basis. And because nationalism is, can't be the basis for morality. No, it's not. You, no. you, yeah. you can justify such disgusting things that way. And yet we, we put a bow on it and call it patriotism. And, you know, I, I love this country to the extent that it makes sense. But at the end of the day, no nation is my master and it's not what guides my moral thinking. And I really just hate to see people with genuine love and enthusiasm for this country pervert that into this American exceptionalist bullshit that we can pretty much do what we want as long as we have some nebulous tie to an American interest. Yeah. Because, you know, it, there's a lot of responsibility and it doesn't seem like we, we've been able to adequately wield that responsibility. And, you know, it's just... Yeah, it's it's been hard to see a clear moral victory for the United States in the in the post World War II era. Um, you know, I'm sure there are small encounters like the first Gulf War, or uh, you know, lending uh, military support and. Uh, the former Yugoslavia, 
but beyond small cases, military, U.S. military intervention has just caused more trouble. And whatever gets us into it, it just seems to take more, take more American lives. But every time the United States gets into a conflict, you know, we have however many uh, casualties in the United States. And then the enemy has like 10 times that or, or some ridiculous number like hell just, I keep coming back to this, but an American contractor and died and four military personnel were injured. That's five people. And then we kill 25 and injure at least 50. So that's 75. So that's what? Five, 15 times the, the human cost of what um, the United States incurred. And the thing is, as much as we may want to believe that we got a bad guy or we were doing what was right and what was best. Look at the perception. We are sort of indiscriminately or, you know, not with, with not enough discrimination killing Iranians. And we feel horrible when we hear a report about an American being killed. It is really sad when we hear that we have lost an American life abroad. And whether or not, you know, whatever Soleimani did or didn't do, or the other people who were killed did or didn't do, that is still a painful experience to the people of Iran. And the U.S. is responsible. So any anything we do from here on out gets harder and harder the more lives that we take, regardless of the justification. Yep. I mean, that's how you get Pete. I mean, we talked about this earlier. This is how, like, you get ISIS. ISIS, I mean, I'm sure somebody could come along to me and fact check, but I mean, ISIS seems to be a lot of people, uh, younger people who were disillusioned with their uh, prospects in life because of constant military intervention in their lifetimes and bleak economic output. So they get easily get snatched up by extremist organizations. You know, if you live in an area that has been ravaged by war that you see as caused by an aggressor, it makes sense to go and try and fight that aggressor. Now, I don't endorse violence or, you know, terrorism or anything like that, but, uh, you know, sometimes it seems like the acts the United States take are terroristic, but... Terrorism is definitely heinous, and I condemn it, but when we're making policy as the United States and we do something that we know will lead to blowback, that's not a good enough defense to say, well, terrorism's horrible, so, you know, that's on them. If we know, if we're doing things that we know will motivate other people to do that, it is our responsibility to not do the motivating act, even if the response act is not morally justified. Yeah. It's tough. 
And this is why we try to elect people who are able to make good decisions, rational decisions and all that stuff to our highest office. And it does not seem like we have someone who does that. No, it does not. Someone who weighs the possibilities of what's going on, who, yeah, takes it a little more seriously. Who doesn't go like, fuck yeah, after a drone strike kills a whole bunch of people in a foreign, faraway land that you've never been to. Mm-hmm. So, Evan, unless you have anything else, I think that's where we wrap it up. I think that's fair. Well, guys, this has been Adequately Informed. We hope you've enjoyed the episode. Hopefully, next week we will return to normal programming. Hopefully, yeah, I, think, next... I think we need an overcorrection. I think we just got to talk about whatever the happiest thing we can think of is. Yeah, we it's been pretty bleak these uh, last three weeks. Currently looking for Monday releases, but if anything in that changes, we'll let everybody know. And we love feedback. Uh, Hit us up we love feedback. on Facebook or Twitter or email. Really happy to engage with you guys. We love you guys. Pod, podcast at adequatelyinformed.com. And we'd like to thank Anthony Hish for the music. Well, anyway, I'm Joe. I'm Evan. And we hope that you've been adequately informed. <laughs>